Hi and welcome along to this week's edition of the On The Whistle podcast. I'm your host, Zain Nabi. Joining me in our starting lineup this week is Ahmed Youssef, North African football expert, PSL stalwart and winner of the Spirit Cup in the amateur leagues in Grey's Essex, Courtney Fries, and our man in Cameroon, the one, the only, sports media executive and founder of the Best of Africa Awards, Francis and Quain. Gentlemen, a pleasure to have you. How are we all doing today? Very well, Zane. Very well. Nice to see everyone again. Great to be here. Doing well. Doing well. Amazing, amazing. Guys, today we've got a very big subject to sink our teeth in. We're going to be looking at Project Africa and how the sport can be revived and revolutionized on the continent. But before we get there, we've got some listener questions that have come in. On the whistle, I have to remind you, this is your online barbershop. The place where you go for shisha. Your bri place. This is the water cooler where you can talk, you can interact, and you can have some fun with us. So we have two fantastic questions to kick us off. Um, First off, we have a question from Sammy. She listened to our COVID-19 special we did last week and its impact on Africa. Hi, guys. My name is Sammy Mwabe, and I really enjoyed your COVID-19 impact on African football episode. Um, It was great to hear how PSL clubs in South Africa are keeping their players fit during the lockdown. Naturally, the richer, older clubs like Kaiser Chiefs, um, Sundowns, Orlando Pirates have the capacity to adapt and innovate. But my question is, how will the likes of Chipa United, Barocca FC, Highlands Park fare in the long run, both on and off the field? Shall we give this to you to take? Oh, uh, Zane, thank you so much. Uh, firstly, Sammy, thank you very much for such a good question. One of the reasons I like the question is because it looks at everyone and not just the elite clubs in the country. The, um, as there is currently a gap between the top-level clubs and the clubs that you did mention, during this time, with such an intense lockdown that is in South Africa, unlike anywhere else, the lower clubs are actually struggling. Uh, the impact in the long run is the gap between the, the top level clubs and what the clubs we, you currently mentioned will just get bigger because they are not able to have the Zoom sessions. They're not able to have the personal touch, the individual uh, communication sessions with, uh, with coaches like the top tier clubs. So the gap of attainment the gap of performance between these clubs will just continue to grow, especially during this pandemic um, that we're currently having. It's going to hurt financially and on the pitch, the lower level clubs. Can anything be done about it? Uh, There's a model that's happening around the world with other clubs where top tier clubs are having to give up percentages of their salaries in order to help. Uh, but that is not forthcoming currently in the PSL. Um, next up, we have another question. This is from a listener, Chuck, who is new to African football, but uh, is certainly passionate about it. Hi there, Zane. Long-time listener, first-time caller. And I must admit, I don't know anything about African football, so your podcast has been really educational for me. One of the questions I do have for you, though, is it seems after listening to your podcast that a lot of African footballers don't seem to be very highly regarded or highly rated on the international stage. Is that because African footballers are still sort of new to the international football scene? Is it because it's a fear of the unknown of what they're going to get if, if a club buys a, an African player? Why, why is it that we're not seeing more African players both at international level and also at international coaching levels? That's a great question, Francis. Perhaps we can we can hear from you first, and then Ahmed, you can uh, you can double team. I think it's a really really good question. It's uh, pertinent, but I think at the heart of it, as well as how we define the African player, because um, I think if you were to look at all of the major clubs in European football, in maybe the top five leagues, you would find a good number of uh, African players who are core to the present and the future of these teams. Um, The challenge with identifying talent directly from the continent is a whole different conversation. And it's really important and it's really pertinent as well because um, it speaks to maybe the lack of infrastructure in our space and lends itself 
therefore, to the conversation we're about to have today, which is how Africa directly plugs itself into the global marketplace. But I think to say the Africans aren't valued and aren't uh, present in the major leagues, um, I would have to say I disagree with the premise because I think we are there. We could be there more, but maybe also the fans could be better educated as to the origins of some of the players that are household names in these spaces. Thank you, Francis. Ahmed? Yeah, I completely agree. I think maybe that, that comment about you know uh, the lack of awareness could have existed maybe five years ago. I think now in the last couple of years, we've started to see, I mean, in the Premier League alone, the top three goal scorers last season were all African. And there is a start, there's a shift now. Um, I think it's how going forward, those clubs, you know, see the likes of uh, Bamiang and Salah and, and, and Mane and say, well, look, there are great talent out there. And I think through kind of social media, through recordings now, videos, and, uh, um, there's, there's a lot more players you know, for, for these clubs to see. And I think in the future, there will be a lot more um, for sure. Um, so I think it's kind of it's it's kind of something that will improve, uh, and it already hasn't. Perfect. Thank you guys very much for that. And for all the listeners out there, you're part of this family. We want you to send your questions in. We want to hear your comments. We want to see pictures of your babies, whatever it might be. So please uh, blow us up on Twitter or Instagram. You can find us at OTW underscore podcast, or you can like our Facebook page, which is on the whistle podcast. Please get in touch as much as. Courtney, myself, Ahmed, and Francis have opinions and views. So do you. We want to hear from you. New, young, old fans, come and join the party. Um, it's just the way we like to do things on the show. Um, but without further ado, I think we'll move into the big talker this week. And that is about a proposal that came from FIFA president Gianni Infantino when he addressed CAF at a summit back in February. Now, at the time, this made headlines because the president of FIFA unveiled his vision, which was entitled Project African Football to the Top of the World. I tell you what, it's, uh, it says what it does on the tin. It's not exactly the catchiest name in the world. But um, the whole premise of what Gianni did at the seminar in Rabat in Morocco was talk to CAF about how the game could be uplifted on the continent. And he came up with three major pillars. The first being to professionalize the refereeing structures with the support of FIFA. The second being to mobilize investment in infrastructure on the continent so that all of CAF's 54 national associations would have a world-class stadium. And the third element to this, and for me the most interesting to really unpack and sink our teeth into, which we're going to do on the show, is when he spoke about the idea of starting new tournaments I'm going to open this up now to everyone, but first we're going to start with Francis. It's been proposed as an African solution for the continent, yet there's nothing that I can see suggests this has come from Africans. Tell me about that, Francis. Well, again, um, you always come up with these amazing topics, and this is yet another one. Um, I have to say that the the issue of ownership is, is pertinent in any conversation, no matter what it is that we put across. Um, saying there's an African solution to an African problem, it's nice to have the words. Um, but I think for a lot of people sitting in that room on that day, and for a lot of people who were consuming uh, what came out of those four walls on that day, the disappointment was that uh, the president of CAF, Mr. Ahmed Ahmed, for example, who was sitting in the room, um, could have been afforded maybe the opportunity to present this case for Africa. Um, FIFA is a federated body that sits above all the continental structures, and in the key, there I call them, uh, uh, will turn in, in what makes global football function, but it's also an aggregator. And I think for a lot of Africans, on that day, the disappointment was that we, it felt like uh, FIFA with a very European hat was dictating to Africa something that Africans had already thought of. And it was almost as if we were incapable of coming up with ideas or proposals or solutions of our own. Um, and it was that tone, I think, that rubbed people off the wrong way. Everything about this proposal seems like it's done to placate the Europeans. I tell you why. 
Infantino spoke about moving the AFCON to every four years. That is something that the European clubs and UEFA have wanted for a long time because they have to release their best players for a long time in the windows of the AFCON, which would fall between Jan and Feb. Um, obviously, the Egyptian um, AFCON was played in the European summer, but there were complaints about the season being extended for the likes of Mane and Salah and the other African stars. Um, the other suggestion is that Infantino has the Club World Cup, the expanded Club World Cup, as one of the things that he sees as vital to taking up FIFA's revenues. And he wants that to have a regular spot on the FIFA calendar every four years. So that can bring an investment to the game. And having the AFCON every two years doesn't fit in with his agenda there. If the people are coming in from Zurich and Denver and Neon, and they are already coming in from Europe. So there is really an answer to the question that makes it almost rhetorical. I think the more important thing here is our ability to begin to speak for ourselves in terms of what it is we think works for Africa. The reason we already had the challenges around AFCON and when it was taking place and its frequency was already originally set to reflect the interests of the European marketplace, which is where the majority of the African import stars used to play. And I think if the Africans could be allowed to come up with their solution, they can. But the most important thing is that we shouldn't be allowed to. We should come up with our solutions and at some point in time impose our solutions and say, here's what they are. And when they come to the fore, we must champion them, first of all, before we seek the validation or the acceptance of other territories. The whole move to having in the summit is just a very kind of European influence move. There is no one in Africa who would, who would have wanted to play a tournament mm -hmm. in the summer. That's just a clear sign from the start. And um, and if I look at that tournament that happened um, last summer, I see, well, they moved that tournament to, to prevent the, the African players from interrupting the European season. But if you actually look at the players themselves, they're still having to play the same amount of games. They're playing a, lot, a much longer season playing more games, more strenuous on them. From in terms of the um, television rights, the African Cup of Nations this summer was at the same time as the Rugby World Cup, was the same time as the Women's, uh, I think, Euros or the World Cup. It wasn't aired in, in, in most of Europe. So what is the benefit here to the African football when no one can see it? Now, a lot of UEFA um, uh, countries who play in uh, European countries are actually moving towards having a winter break. Now, that winter, I see that winter break as an opportunity for the AFCON to be held in the, back in the winter. I see, um, uh, um, why should an African competition be moved because of that? Why can't African competitions be held in the winter? And they say to the UEFA, look, ha if you want your players to, to, um, to not miss any games, you need to have that break for us. It's not just about you. And I think that's a, kind of a, a bold move. And, and again, it goes back to the TV rights. When I was younger, you'd always see the AFCON winter always on television. This year, it was, never, it was nowhere to be seen just because it was during summer and during a lot of other, other competitions. Um, so, yeah, I think definitely that one aspect of it being controlled by um, decision makers in, in, in Europe. And I think um, you mentioned the President Ahmed Ahmed not presenting. I think he's in a very difficult position at the moment where he's undergoing litigation, accusations. Um, he's having to juggle a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get into too much details of that, but I see, well, you need to have a leader, in Af a strong leader in Africa who um, doesn't have to worry about other things. And his, the main focus of, of CAF should be on improving the African game. And I don't really see it. Uh, I don't really see um, CAF being strong enough to do that. And it's not just him, you know, throughout the, you know, all the corruption that we've seen over the years. Um, I, I wish there was a kind of a, a, a group in, in CAF that were just, you know, focused on the end goal and not having to worry about other issues that were going on. Um, that might help. Uh, Zane, just, just listening to both uh, the, the question and both answers that have just come through, uh, the global calendar, the perfect global calendar that uh, Fantino is looking to bring into play, I don't think that calendar exists anyway. It's, it's nowhere uh, to be found. I think the global calendar that we can create needs to respect every union, Oceania, CAF, Europe, those calendars 
are existing separately uh, and need to continue the way they currently are because trying to merge them is where you are, for example, coming, as you mentioned a bit earlier, not consulted, not engaged. When you were talking about Fantino bringing this idea uh, to, uh, to, uh, to CAF, this is what people will feel. You feel you own this product and you're giving us almost an ultimatum of come with us, you have to fit into our calendar. And that shouldn't be the case. Just like what Ahmed just spoke about now. The leader of CAF needs to be somebody strong who's going to be controlling CAF the way he controls Europe and FIFA, Fantino. That's what they should be doing. You need someone in CAF that is doing something similar and um, the, the different organizations need to be respected. They're on different global calendars, you know? It, it needs to be made to work. Uh, but but I'm not saying you have to come with us. And I think that's what Fantino is coming with. If it doesn't work for uh, the European calendar, it's going to unsettle other calendars. And that should never be the case. Now, we know that Fatma Zamora is currently tasked with leading Africa. She's the FIFA Secretary General, former UN um, diplomat. So a couple of months ago, gentlemen, we were sitting down after our podcast recording in Nando's because we like to keep the African theme going of South African food. And this was a good six months or so before we heard Infantino speak at CAF. And Francis, who's on this call, was unfurling a vision for Africa about how we could take the game forward. And Francis, it seems like a lot about what you spoke about in terms of the big picture ideas was what Gianni spoke about in Rabat in, in, in February. Oh, well, it, it's nothing surprising, to be honest. Because um, you you rightly mentioned early on, uh, Madam Samora, um, and just a point of correction, you know, her mandate has already ended. Um, she was she came in to serve to uh, help bring some structure to the house or, and help with the review of certain things. And I think she did a truly amazing job uh, at that time over there. And she continues to be one of these people who I think could bring so much to the game in general. And um, during her her time in, in office there, I think she received a lot of ideas from many quarters. And so even the time when we were speaking, and this is all of maybe four or five months back, if, if I am right, um, we were talking, I was sharing with you, and then we've had this conversation maybe even three, four years ago. Um, it's something which has been passionate to a good number of us about the ability to see African, African's best talent in Africa and the ability to invite some of the world's best talents to also come and play their trade on the continent. So that way we don't see football as an exclusively export-only mm -hmm. type yeah. space. It is so. And so in view of this, in view of this, we have with associates of mine, Mr. Kingsley Pongong, who runs Rainbow Sports, for example. Uh, there's a group of us who we share ideas. We helped to draft uh, and to fine-tune some of these thoughts which we've had during the time of her mandate and shared with her to say, this is an idea which we think could be championed uh, through Africa's own structures to also give it teeth. Uh, because I think it's important that solutions for Africa come from Africa. Um, and so when we heard him on the rostrum speaking on the subject, it was with mixed feelings because... Mm there's an appreciation that, okay, this has made the agenda, this is fantastic, but at the same time, there was a small tingle of disappointment because you think that maybe it's for the African head of the African game to speak on the subject. Otherwise, we are left with what uh, Brother Courtney was referring to earlier, where, again, solutions feel like they're coming from outside in. Mm. And um, I think this speaks to the core of ownership, which is what we started the conversation, the first word I shared when we started speaking. Because without ownership, I don't think it will have success. And if it's one of those prescriptions that come again from outside, the problem with FIFA is while it's a global structure, the fact that it is located, it is headquartered in Europe, uh, has genuine, generally been led by Europeans through the years, which most people equate FIFA with UEFA. 
Mm-hmm. So it's hard to distinguish when UEFA is speaking or FIFA is speaking on behalf of European football interests. Maybe if the headquarters was in Taiwan or in, I don't know if Taiwan is a body. <laughs> but maybe if headquarters were in New York or in Brazil or in Nairobi or in Sydney, we might have less of this tinge. But it just feels like it's the Europeans again dictating to us how our game should be played. And when it's an idea that has come from us being presented by one who isn't of us, no matter how much you love us, how much you stand for us, it is never for a friend to come mm. into your home to recommend uh, how your children should be educated or, or the game plan you have for the well-being of your family. It's always for the parents to speak. And so you want to see a father or a mother or auntie or uncle a guest speaking within these home terms. So when we sit down as Africans and we want to address our solutions, we invite international or the global structures to come and accompany us, not to speak for us, but to maybe help us serve as sounding boards to whom we can say, here's an idea we have. What do you think? And they share their ideas back to us, but we take ownership of it. But when they run with it and it becomes their agenda for us, it's hard to swallow. Preach, brother, preach. I think we're, we're all we're all singing from the same hymn sheet there, and, and certainly felt the same way when we saw these proposal made. But given that you've really applied your mind to this, Francis, um, and we're going to go around the horn. But when you look at the commercial revenue that a four-year Afcon could bring in, again, quoting from President Infantino here, that the Euros makes twenty times as much as the Afcon. If you go to Forbes and you look at the figures, the Euros in France um, generated a commercial revenue of over $2 billion. For UEFA, it was a profit of over $600 million. When you look at the AFCON, CAF has declared that they made an $80 million profit on the tournament that was held in Egypt last year. And if you do the math based on what President Gianni Infantino has said, it means that the commercial revenue would sit at around $100 million. So there's a huge gap. Do you think that gap is fair in terms of the product the AFCON puts out versus the Euros? And is there a way that having a four-year tournament would significantly take up the commercial revenue, Francis? Okay. In my opinion, uh, I have an entrepreneurial hat. So... The ability to look at the monetization of a platform is one thing. So you could sit back and you could say, if I were to compare two things that should not be comparable anyway, the fact that they are both football tournaments, the Euros and the AFCONs, they're completely different propositions in the sense that uh, commercially, the TV rights, Brother Ahmed referred to, to his inability to find the game during the summer in the European market space. So how much you would raise for the rights to this game also depends on the time in which it's located, but how it's also sold and to whom it is sold. You have companies, uh, we don't need to go into details about the sort of companies who previously had bought the rights, the television rights to, to, to the Afcons over uh, six, seven tournaments in advance. Um, in changing economies, it's hard to imagine, fathom why you would do such things, but these are the kind of contracts that are being reviewed. But on a more basic level, when they do the valuation of an of a commercial, the commercial viability and the mathematics that sit behind a tournament, it goes down to little things like travel, how much is spent on accommodation, on feeding, on drinking, a, a whole wide variety of ambits that come in and constitute the mathematical equations that they look at at the end of the tournament and they say, this tournament was worth X. Cameroon, for example, is supposed to be hosting the next AFCON. was meant to host the one that ended up in Egypt because their infrastructure wasn't in place. Whatever the political reasons, no need to go into the details. But what happened in Cameroon and what is happening in Cameroon is symptomatic of what happens in or could happen in the vast majority of African countries. The 2020 Euros, for example, that will take place in 2021, but uh, will still be called the 2020s, um, are being split over, I believe, with 20 countries, the 20 cities or something like that. There's a reasoning behind it where commercial interests also came in and said, 
bring this product viable and to have this money spread in more places, here's why we would need to do it like this at this particular time. We don't seem to have this kind of level of thought process that goes into the creation, the definition, and the rollout of our AFCON. So you have very bureaucratic or administrative decisions that are taken, and then the commercial interests predominantly lie in the European market. Mm -hmm. So then they turn to a European audience to say, Cameroon, for example, is buying the rediffusion of a Cameroon versus Egypt game from a European company. Makes no sense. And then every year, yeah, then you would hear something like, oh, they had to pay uh, $2 million for the rights to the AFCON games. A small country like Cameroon. Why are they spending that kind of money when their country is actually playing in the tournament? So it's, it's a really complex affair. If I look at Cameroon has been wearing the kit of Puma for the best part of, I don't know, 16, 20 years. Now they just replaced Puma with Lecoq Sportif. But the whole time Puma were doing the kit of Cameroon, as an example, there's no Puma store in Cameroon. An original Cameroonian national kit. I need to buy it in Europe. I don't think it's just. I don't think it's just Puma. I think it's all of the um, kind of it, all of the other companies. Up, Egypt couldn't. You couldn't get an an official Adidas shirt in Egypt. They have Adidas stores, but there were just there wasn't any in there. And, and I managed to obviously get something in Europe, but I'm saying people in Egypt couldn't get them. Um, Zane, and and this is what brings me back to my point about leadership. I think the leaders might, if not this leader, there needs to be a leader put in whose mindset is not European dominated. You know, the last two presidents are from Switzerland. You, you know the president before what he was like, the criminal uh, mindedness that he brought to the job. I'm not saying the current president is like that, but we are looking for, people are looking for this perfect global calendar. I think that, well, you need to be looking at uh, a global leader before anything else. I think also it, there has to be a strong leader in CAC because I think at the moment it's, you know, you need a long-term, someone who's, who's going to come in for the long-term and, and make those bold decisions. Going um, back to the point about the kind of the AFCON and, and how the revenue generated over it, if it's, you know, I, I don't see how um, the, the, the view which Infantino said that by making it every four years you'll generate more revenue. I, I think that it's slightly different in, in AFCONs compared to, um, you know, European competitions in Afcon, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of the economies in these countries that will thrive on having a tournament every two years. Um, yes, yeah, I, was, and it's, I was visiting. Yeah. I was going to a town Ismailia, which I've never been to. You know, you're having food there. You're you're paying the transport. You're driving an economy, and that's one of the key things why it's really good to have it every two years. And also, and I think someone mentioned it earlier, you're you're showcasing players that wouldn't get that limelight every, you know, every four years on on, on that major stage. By having that kind of every two years, there's, there's players that, that can come out and and I can, you know, there's these players who can shine in one Afcon and then go on and go on to, to kind of bigger and better things. So, um, I'm not sure I'd take his point about the revenue thing better. It's important. It's I think the aim the aim is to make the thing. Whatever tournament, especially in CAF, uh, a progressive tournament that almost heals areas. And that cannot happen, as you're saying, Ahmed, over four years. It needs to happen more regular. And it need, by happening more regular, it puts people in touch with the players and the economy as well. And, you know, if, if I may interject here, I also believe we, we forget that football in itself is, is a conflict for, for social engagement. It can build societies. And I think if we have, if we understood just how beautiful this game is on this continent mm -hmm. and how it allows it, with the travel I did just in Egypt this time, I've been going to, to the AFCON since, um, I, I think my very first one where I paid my own ticket and went to Ghana in uh, 2008. I ended up spending seven weeks in Ghana. It was my first trip ever to Ghana. But I traveled to Tamale, to Kumasi, to all these random places where I would have only just gone to Accra before. After that, I went to Angola, even with all the problems, went to South Africa. Um, well, that was more World Cup time. Um, but I generally believe if we're reviewing this, um, the conversation we should be having about the financial impact that 
maybe the, the game has on our national government. When you're asking nations to accommodate, our game has moved from a 16-team tournament to a 2014 tournament in the space of two years. Um, even with FIFA's World Cup, they gave two tournaments, so eight years plus two extra from the decision that was made to say only when we get to the United States will we roll out more teams because we need to grow without more can be participating. We made an arbitrary decision to expand the numbers, which means that you're asking host nations to build more stadia, more hotels, more roads. At the same time, while they have priorities to build schools, to provide education for their kids, sanitary facilities for the nation, I think it's demanding. But if you said you could have three, four countries come together each time and do participatory hosting, the same way the Euros are doing with the 2020s, where they're saying we're spreading it across multiple geographies, you can come into a region and say it's the East African tournament this time, or Northern East African, it's Southern African, and you say, okay, we're going to have four games in this place, and four games in this place, and four, so it's lighter under national states, but it encourages integration. Then you go to the airline companies, and you're talking about the ability to move people. Then you say to the politicians, you need to drop these visa requirements, which is crazy. The way the Europeans can move in Europe, and the way the South Americans can move in South America, the way the Asians can move in Asia, we can't move like that in Africa. Mm-hmm. So even when we have a tournament in Egypt, the hurdles I had to go through to get my visa to come and attend to watch Cameroon play in Egypt was crazy. But mm-hmm. literally two days before my flight was when the Egyptian authorities that said, hey, if you have a ticket, then you can show this and we will issue. But how many people could buy a cash issued or cash sanctioned ticket online with a visa card when we have a cash economy? being practical about our space, but using football also to encourage our integration, to facilitate the ability for us to commune using football as an anchor, it will give the sport an even greater place in this space. And then the commercial interest will logically follow. Mm-hmm. And, and Francis, it doesn't start with spacing it out and saying do it every four years. It says do it better. Sure. That's where the conversation should be had. Sure. And, and Francis, to, to your point, um, there have been World Cups that were held across two countries. The Euros have done it a few times. So there's no yeah. reason why Africa can't do it. And I'll, I'll we did it. it. We, I'll, we, we had Ghana and Equatorial Guinea. Yes. They did a co-hosting one, and we thought that was the beginning of a conversation. Yeah. It, it should be logical to come into this space and say, okay, the Senac region or the North, ECOWAS. North Africa. Pan Africa. Yes. North Africa. It's going to be... Uh, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, and Egypt are hosting us this time. Then you're looking at where your team is game, where your pool games will be. But then you know that from the quarterfinals, you may be moving to Tunisia or the, the Egyptian, the teams that were in Egypt will be moving across from Morocco. And it helps them also politically to begin to speak with each other at the political level. And then at the economic level, the, the people who are invested in the space will become they have to do the cross-border trade. Right now, we're still using football only as a game. And that's where I think Africa gets it wrong. It's no longer just a sport. And until we connect with it for its full capacity, we will miss out on the ability to own the sport that comes along with a tremendous industry an industry that feeds those people like you were talking about, the little meats you buy on the outside the game on the way into the game. All of a sudden, if you're having a game in Ethiopia and the following weekend you're having a game in Kenya, then you're learning what the people in Kenya eat before they watch their game. Yeah, of course. And Francis, the one thing to say is we talk about the informal economy that benefits, and that's something that I love. But there's also, yes. there's also, you're paying tax when you go to a restaurant. You're paying tax when you go yeah. to a bar. You're paying tax when you do the tourist thing. So the government, for the, if, and, and listen, some people will take a different perspective and go, if we've invested millions and it doesn't really balance out. But if you have existing infrastructure that can be used, the tax that um, and the stimulation and the stimulus to your to your local economy can't be ignored in any way. What I was going to say is. Just as we tie a bow on this, because there's another bison of an issue we need to sink our teeth into. Am I right in saying, in general, the panel is happy with the AFCON being played every two years? It just needs to be organized and sold better and sold in a way and marketed in a way and distributed in a way 
that allows African countries to to showcase the tournament. It's not about moving it for four years. Is is that would everyone in agreement with that? I, I agree, and I think it, the, way, the only way that will happen is if, as Courtney said, there's a strong leader who can, you know, focus on developing that part of the game. Listen, I, 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 I think we need to get Courtney into into calf. I think we should get. <laughs> I, I just say to you, no idea how matter big or small. If you don't have strong leadership, nothing's going to get off the ground. Yeah. Sure. So here's here's my final question on this. Ahmed brought this point up early, and I think earlier, and I think it's a beautiful point. If you are a local player in Africa, I think we'll all agree a tournament every two years gives you an opportunity to get showcased to the rest of the world. That's fine. We're all in agreement with that. That's great. But what happens to the top Africans in Europe who are pursuing Champions League, who are pursuing Premier League, La Liga? whatever, Ligon, whatever titles, and, and, and looking to be successful with those teams, what benefit is it for them to play an AFCON every two years? Okay. I, I need to speak on this one a little bit because we've been having this particular debate ever since I got into the industry. My introduction to the industry was actually rooted in a conversation that I had to have with a premiership club on behalf of a player to explain why... Um, it was important for him to play for his nation. And I remember sitting in this meeting with the coach, uh, top-tier top premiership club, um, one of the big, that time it was probably just a big three. <laughs> and um, I remember sitting down with him in his office, and uh, he was like, I can't understand, can't you help us get the federation to take back the the request that he turns up for a national team game because they're bound by FIFA rules to release the player. Or and then his other option was can we get your player maybe to consider retiring from international football? And the player had expressed to me his desire to play for his country. And I remember saying to the coach at the time and I said, But sir, what I find weird is your clubs make announcements saying how honored they are when a player is called up to play for England or for France or for Italy or for Brazil, you make statements, especially with the England national team. And at this time, there was a young England boy who had just been called up uh, and he was relatively young. And the club had come out to make a major statement about how much of a fantastic thing it was. And I remember saying to him, I said, the last time England won anything, so you can't tell me it's good for this guy's career because he's going to win things. But I said, the last time England won a World Cup or an international title was in 1966. This boy has been called up for a country that has regularly won things. So he's potentially going to win a tournament. And he laughed with a certain level of arrogance, almost like, a, oh, but it's not the same thing. And I said, no, one's fatherland is one's fatherland. The pride he feels for wearing that jersey, you may never understand. Mm. But it's your duty to understand that. And you cannot put a gentleman in a position where he has to choose his mission over his club when you don't make your other players do the same till they're older. So a poor school, at the time when he wasn't necessarily being called up for England all the time, can afford to say, I'll retire from the England national team so I can extend my career. If he did that when he was 20 years old, he would be castigated by his nation. And you put these gentlemen in the same positions where you make them pick their nations or their clubs over their nations, and yet these are the nations they have to return to when they're done with the game. You're not being understanding. So, until the clubs are able to understand that it's an honor and a privilege for them to have the stars of Africa find their trade in their space, and figure out then how they say, maybe they can come and say, well, you can't afford to pay you your full salary when you, I don't know, put in the causes, but don't make these gentlemen have to choose, because it's not a choice anybody should have to make. Francis, I think you've articulated very, very well on that. I don't even feel I need to answer. So earlier, Francis said we need to make Courtney the president of, of CAF. I think if that happens, we need to make Francis the president of FIFA. And you know what? I'm just going gonna, gonna to add to it. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to add to it a phrase, financial attraction. Because if these stars are, are coming from Europe, 
to play in the in the African tournament. It's going to enhance the economy. People are going to leave their homes to go and view these outstanding stars. You know, we've got some of the best football players in the world at the moment that are applying their trade in the Premier League. Three of the top, as Ahmed spoke about it earlier, that were the highest goal scorers last season. Three of them. Where in the history of the English Premiership have three Africans been at the top? The amount of followers that Mane had around the tournament and from fans from all around Africa and, and Egypt and people were going to see uh, um, him play just because they, you know, it's up because they just wanted to see him. That was the reason. That's the type of level of attraction you can bring to the game by having that tournament so frequently. These players, who, these, these fans who never get a chance to see these players, they'll be able to see them. Yeah. And, and that's the financial attraction that the country deserves that level of respect for. This, that, that person belongs to that country. Show the value, be respectful, allow them to go and play for their country. Simple. Nobody Perfect. stops, nobody stops, uh, well, I would like to think, and let me not be idealistic here, I would like to think that people aren't stopped to go play for Sweden or Iceland or Luxembourg or whoever these countries are, you know. Why should they, that ultimatum be, as you said, uh, Francis, why should that ultimatum be where you have to choose? Why? Yes. Yeah. Guys, I think we've, we've had a fantastic discussion just on the AFCON, but one of the, for me, revolutionary ideas presented was a pan-African competition. And when Infantino spoke about it, he said there would be uh, 20 permanent teams in this tournament, four others that would qualify from the regions. And it was a tournament where he spoke about the profits that these clubs could make, where he said there needed to be a total investment of $100 million in those clubs, the permanent ones, with $20 million being invested by those teams. And the idea was to have a tournament that would generate $3 billion over a five-year cycle. I know there's a lot of numbers I've thrown out there, but let's maybe start with the first question and we'll simplify it should we even be talking about a pan-african competition does the continent need one to uplift its football well zane i think anything that's going to take football forward where all parties are respected i, I think they, they, it has to come onto the table it has to be a discussion Right, you, and you then, played in Africa, Courtney. What was it like? You played for Manning Rangers. You guys, did, did you even take that competition seriously at the time when you were in the PSL? Absolutely. The the comp. Uh, if there's one of the few things I can say about the club I played for at the time, uh, is the one competition that was given a huge amount of respect for was the Africa playing in Africa. But the one thing I did find out when I went into Africa is the levels of professionalism maybe 40% above what I knew. And that is also a, a, a mark of my individual lack of professionalism at that time. Uh, the, the, the development of the game, which when I went to ASEC Memosa uh, in, um, in Ivory Coast, um, and just to look at the, 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 the footballing schools, around that club and what is being taught to the youngsters. You can see why these clubs and, and, and uh, Raja Casablanca, you can see why these clubs are leading the way in their countries in terms of football. It's, it's the development of the game from the bottom up, which is what we did not have in South Africa. I think with the about the Super League, I, I probably have quite uh, views that might not might agree. Like, I, I don't really see it as something that um, it would be beneficial. I think that if you have this sort of tournament where there's 20 uh, teams that have the right to be there, that um, creates an, an, a friendly environment. It creates a friendly atmosphere. You mentioned just four teams having to qualify. Um, I think it, it has the risk of turning into something like the UEFA Nations League where you know it's a, it's a glorified friendly. I personally want to see that money in the, and, and, and those investments. Why not they, why can't they go into developing the, the, the CAF Champions League? Why can't they go into developing grassroots football? Um, 
obviously I've not you know played football at that level, but I think that the players um, they want something to qualify for something. You know, players in, in in the leagues want to come in that top four. They want to win the league, but if not, they want to finish in top four position, top three positions, so they can then qualify into the CAF Champions League and win that. And I think that's probably the CAF Champions League is the biggest thing in in uh, club football in Africa. I'd even say the CAF Confederations Cup has a much higher standing in Africa than the Europa League does. So there's already two competitions there that that have you know uh, that the players want to uh, aiming to qualify for. I don't see that Super League would really help. Francis, what do you think? I know you analyse competitions. You look at structures. Um, this is the first time I've seen a model where you have elements of a closed league with elements of promotion relegation. What's your take? Well, again, I think it, it, it's interesting the proposition that they have. It's a uh, merger and mixture of uh, different propositions that are existing. I'm of the opinion, personally, that I think if we had a, a Pan-African League, it would be one that would sit exclusively above all national leagues and be an entity unto itself. So you could still also, you maybe be extracting elements from maybe like the MLS, which have a franchise system. So therefore, for investors, they maybe know there's no... Uh, relegation out of the space. Um, some people say that discourages competition. Uh, it's worked well for the Americans. If you look at the NBA and you look at uh, structures like that, uh, even even the NBA have already begun or are looking to roll out the BAL, uh, which is the the African League, the Pan African League mm-hmm. for basketball, uh, uh, being uh, rolled out by Mr. Fowl. Um, it, it's a fascinating proposition, but for me, at the heart of, of the conversation is the ability to ask Africa whether Africa believes it needs a premium product of its own. And I generally don't think we have enough nations that can have viable leagues unto themselves. Nothing convinces me that a standalone Pan African League of twenty to even forty teams, where you're able to have maybe two. From certain bigger nations like the Egypt, like the South Africans, uh, who have the ability to come in at a buy-in price that guarantees you stadium, uh, transportation, uh, a, a fan union, so you have participation at stadia, uh, an academy structure, um, all of the things that come with professional football in the rest of the world. Nothing can convince me that it would not be a viable product. Because if you look at the experiments that are based like China with the Super League, and you think that this league didn't exist 10 years ago, and they're able to build what they have, and you look at the MLS and you see what it's becoming, the buy-in on, an, on a franchise and the MLS now is between 400 and $600 million. That's a buy-in. So to get a new license, to get a new franchise, and the MLS, that's one of the kind of numbers you're looking at. Even the Indian market, what they're doing with their six-month football, because we, we sent players out into the Indian League last year, and I was dumbfounded by the, the salaries that they were offering for these six-month windows. You know, Francis, when you talk about a business project as well, I also feel that the element of failure must not be feared. If you look at the MLS, that, that league is not being successful all the time. It has gone through peaks and troughs. There was a period where it was very successful, then it just died out. I can still remember they used to have the penalties where people used to run from the halfway line and trying to... That was the concept. They were trying to build this product, but it died off and then it resurrected itself. So even though the Pan-African competition may not light up the, 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 um, the world immediately, I think there is something there that you need to keep tapping into and need to stay with in order to make it successful. But that's just my point. You know, don't be, don't be fearful of the failure initially that could come through. The premiership and the championship are exactly what it is that you're describing. Its creation was born out of three uh, owners of clubs going to lunch. We are now at a stage where we have the premiership, which is a private business, that sits above League One of the Federation in, in, in England. It worked so well that another business was created called the Championship that sits above that League One again. And League One in England, 
It's really not the best of football, but I mean, the federation. I agree with the whole concept of how the Premier League was created, and I think it's a good, it's a good thing. But I think the fundamental differences here is that it's the, with the Premier League, it's a it's one country, and it didn't it hasn't prevented anyone from getting into the golden circle. You've got small clubs that are just able to climb up the league. It's just an additional league. Whereas with this concept of a pan kind of super an African Super League, you you are putting a barrier on certain clubs. Clubs like Leicester had that just been an exclusive league would have never won the Premier League they wouldn't have even got into the Premier League what about the, the Celtics and the Rangers who are also part of the United Kingdom now somehow Wales Cardiff can make it in from Wales but somehow the teams in Scotland don't but they all carry the same passport they found their way we can find ours we can focus on the things that will stop us from even thinking about it or we can focus on solutions that can make us begin something, that can grow to be the most amazing thing in world football ever. But if we want to start saying these guys didn't do it, or this is why they did it, how they did it, and it works for them, then we won't even experiment with ours. The man in Scotland, the guy, the owner, or the player from Scotland carries the same passport as the, the, the guy from Cardiff, as the guy from Manchester United. Yet they play in different leagues. And one of them, the guy in Cardiff, can make it to the Premiership. But the guy in Rangers, or Celtic, or Smith Lopez, he can't. How does that work there? It hasn't stopped them from continuing. I, I, I just feel that there is a. There's an idea there that needs to be really thought well of. You've got to also look at the uh, the size of the United Kingdom in comparison. Will it be divided into North Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere just because of the size of the African continent? But I think all ideas are on the table. You can put a tier above what we currently have. I think the, yeah. a, a, a tier can exist there. Uh, and, and that tier will just not only globalize that competition, it will start to improve other African competitions within Africa. So my line of thinking is actually closer with Ahmed's from the position of Premier League. Again, I think you've articulated very well and explained the history of how that was formed, Francis. But it's one country versus an entire continent. I do take your point that you know if we don't try something and we start, we only focus on the negatives, we just won't get anywhere. But I want to ask two questions to this. One. What is the fan experience going to be for this um, for this um, Pan-African Club competition if it were ever to go off? Right now, it's pretty hard for fans to travel for the African Champions League. And one of the beautiful things, particularly of big African uh, football nations, and even the smaller ones, is the derbies and fans going to stadiums. So how will the fan experience be in the stadium and or, or are we just going to focus on a you know what we're going to fill the we're going to fill the home stadium with home fans but we focus on the quality product that we broadcast around the continent and the world i think it's going to be difficult for a lot of fans to travel really if if, if you know and I, I think the only kind of way that it would work is if you do have a split of some sort of um, I think in in basketball in the um, NBA they have the kind of the Easts conference. East and West conference. That's something that worked because from a logistical point of view, you're asking um, two out of so it, say you have it above the the league, you're asking two of those clubs to travel. You know, say it's from you know Algeria to South Africa, from the top of Africa to the bottom of Africa, uh, for a midweek game or a weekend game. It, it it's an it's, an, it's a lot of you know addition to, to, to those the fans I don't I'm not sure you know if, if it's a midweek it, you know you won't get any fans really traveling who they're working and and bear in mind as well different countries in Africa have different holidays they have different weekends um, in, in some of the Muslim countries it's a Friday and a Saturday in other countries it's Saturday and, and Sunday there's a lot of kind of logistical dif difficulties that I think will arise for fans because of that Francis okay um, I think you raised some very, very valid points. But these are points that in the last six years we have spoken with, have sat down with people. If I, 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 one of the leagues that I think has to really be studied a lot is the MLS and the USL. Because, again, the conversations around distance, which is one of the things that has always valid been a point. about America. Yeah. 
whether it's an Eastern, Western conference, the only time they started doing that even was when they hit a certain number of clubs. And so it became a question of the logistics around the number of teams that they had played. I think they had present about 2018. So it had more to do with that than anything else. Um, the Chinese League, the Chinese League, China is pretty much a continent as well. <laughs> Russia, no different. The size and geography is one thing, and the way you overcome that is transportation. So we have challenges in our space in terms of how maybe, like you rightly said, a, uh, an Egyptian team would play a South African team game. But yet somehow we're able to go for meetings. Uh, for me, every challenge presents an opportunity. So there will be somebody who will sit back and say, here's the opportunity for me. How do I move maybe 10,000 people over a weekend to and fro? And here's an opportunity, here's a guaranteed business space that allows me to say, based on this market, I can now go to my bank and say, I want to set up an airline company that moves around these particular hubs based on this business module that needs these people to move. These are opportunities that, invest for, that exist for other investors. Before, people used to say, well, when you had uh, 10,000 people come down to London from Manchester, where would they stay and how would they go back up? It wasn't always the case that the trains were great and there were hotels that could meet everybody's pocket. But smaller businesses came along and said, okay, it's no longer about the bed and breakfast. People like the Holiday Inn came in and said, based on games and entertainment, they built business modules that supported an existing demand. I agree with that, and I, I take Ahmed and your point as well, yes, saying because I, I, I do see it. But just going back to something you said a bit earlier there, Francis, I think that, yes, we need to see who buys into this concept firstly, you know, because I, I do think this, the split just makes sense because it is such a vast place. But let's see who comes to the party originally, you know, because it may not need a split. Yeah, well, look, regional competition seems smart. Africa has some very rich men who are already involved in football, whether that's Moise Katumbi, whether that's Dan Goti, whether that's um, Patrice Motsepe. So there certainly seem to be owners that you can get involved in football brands um, all, over the, all over the continent. Um, and Francis, I think you brought up a valid point. The Americas, that's a continent on its own. And one of the reasons the NFL started to play games in London was because the flights on the east coast of North America, it's shorter for those two to get to London than it is to get to San Francisco, to get to Oakland, to get to Seattle. So if we can get those logistics sorted out, I think um, you're right. There's potential to do it. And the fact that we have this happening in the, uh, in the Americas, the fact that Russia and China, you say, have very vast distances that teams and people have to travel Brazil. these are logistics Brazil. that can be worked out brazil another one yeah you're right can i please just add one thing before we go of course um i had a conversation with a group of former there i called them african greats and i put this idea to them and i said what do you think would be your greatest joy as a person who's played the game and you know made a name internationally across and of the five uh players that i put the question to they said um to play at home and i was like mm. to play at home as in to play that's humbling anywhere in africa to play league football at home and of one of these people mr george Weyer, he said who ironically left liberia played his football in cameroon before he went to monaco to join mr austin Wenger. The point that was raised then was that there was a time when Africa's best played in Africa. And we seem to have completely forgotten. And we're working on a paradigm that we will only see our best play their trades on, and they will only be the best when they play their trade in Europe. And we must change that. We must believe that we're not doing something new. We're doing what was. Our best used to play here. We had those derbies and those competitions where people believed that they could go on a Saturday or a Sunday or a Thursday and watch a good game and the 70,000 people amplified in voice and in passion watching the beautiful game on home turf. We can't abdicate that and act like the paradigm.
and means now our best, including our kids, not even present, the ones to come, will have to play in Europe. Yeah. We can't stop that thinking. Cool. Well, guys, thank you for digging into this subject. It's been absolutely amazing. Um, this is why On The Whistle is here, to dig into these subjects, to talk, to debate, and create ideas. Till the next time, enjoy. Salagashlef. <laughs>